My name is Julia Ferrioli. It is a lovely gray day here in Seattle, and I'm recording this uh, with John for Open Source Stories. Uh, John, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm John Minahan. Uh, some people might know me as the motorcycle goofus from Twitter. I've moved from Twitter to elsewhere uh, recently. I might also be known as the founder of Freepository. It was the first uh, hosted source control uh, system and service uh, that was in May of 99. And I've been in software developments and kind of the startup system, uh, startup ecosystem, pardon me, um, ever since. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to dig into that, but... Let's have a little bit of fun first. Sure. So I noticed um, in your short questionnaire that you have some, you've had some interesting hobbies in the past. So True. I want to, I want to see if I can um, hear a little bit about the maybe the riskiest or most fun thing. That you you've uh, well, you've sure. done in that so, in that world. <laughs> yes, the obvious the obvious answer there is the motorcycle riding and and the jumping. Uh, it's been thematic for me for uh, most of my life. Certainly, it, it was pretty obvious by the time I was a teenager. I built uh, race cars, really low dollar race cars, but race cars, uh, and I had a period where I was was just very focused on becoming a, a motorcycle stuntman. And my thing was jumping, jumping motorcycles. Uh, I got pretty good at that. I practiced that every day, crashed a lot, ultimately reached a point where I was able to jump uh, my Hodaka um, Wombat. The nickname was a combat Wombat. It was a very lightweight motorcycle. I was able to jump that uh, 70 feet and without getting injured, which was, you know, something that had taken me quite a while to uh, practice up to. And I thought, oh, well, this is gonna turn into, you know, stuntman career, and, and of course it didn't. I mean, there, there's a, you know, any number of actual reasons why that didn't occur, but the big one was I just, I didn't really have any clue on how to go somewhere, take my motorcycle, which I was convinced I needed with me, and, and get somewhere and do this thing. So it was kind of an anti-plan. Uh, you know, I'd refer to it as an anti-plan. I, I did a lot of work to, to develop this skill, mm -hmm. which was a good learning experience for me because it taught me how to, you know, keep trying different things uh, until I got the result that I wanted. But ultimately, like the next the next step, I didn't have a plan for the big thing. So the big thing didn't happen because there was, there was no, you know, I didn't have a map for what to do next. Um, but yeah, that's probably, uh, in, I mean, in Toto, maybe that's not the riskiest thing I ever did because I have jumped out of a plane on purpose. Uh, I went skydiving once. And I had a broken thumb, by the way, from a motocross uh, accident. Uh, there was just during a time period where I was, 
again, trying to get back into jumping and getting better at it. But, you know, you, you put about 25 years in between the last jump and the, and the next jump, and, you know, the skill level's not quite still there. So I crashed a few times and broke my thumb, and and the people at the skydiving place almost didn't let me go. It's like, you, you're not going to be able to pull the thingamajigger if the dude that you're jumping with passes out. Like, really? I mean, if the dude passes out, we're, we're both gone. So what's really, are you are you really going to be that picky about this? So, um, you know, high risk, um, taking risks, risk taking. That's, uh, in fact, that's, that's one of the, the three themes of my book, entrepreneurship. So I'm putting my thumb up here. Entrepreneurship, risk taking, and uh, integrity. And, you know, I, I, I try to weave the line, weave a line between those three themes, you know, across some, you know, milestones in my life mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I, I entered a situation that was risky, entrepreneurial, and ended up having to, you know, navigate through it in a way that, that I hadn't planned. And, you know, that happened yeah. at a few different points. So I just want to say that I really appreciate you specifying that you were skydiving and not just jumping out of a plane. Because the way that you phrased that initially, I was like, how high high up was that plane? Wait, what? Well, uh, yeah. Um, I think the highest I've jumped, uh, I jumped off a cliff into a lake. And it was it was marked at 63 feet. So, you know, I'm trusting that someone at some point measured that, you know, because it's spray painted at 63 feet. Yeah. And that was uh, that was that was rough. Yeah. Because, you know, water hit me right here and I bit my tongue. And, you know, it's like it's bleeding and it's like, yeah, oh, wow. So. Well, that's. Um... I feel like there's a certain amount of, of risk taking in, in a lot of what we do, um, especially in this in this world of technology. My the, the, the closest I think I, I, I come to similar amounts of risk taking are not intentional. Um, yeah. I seem to have a thing for natural disasters. Um, so I've I've driven through a tornado. I've hitchhiked into a hurricane. None of these things were necessarily intentional, but they did wind up happening. So at least yours were intentional and and, and planned. Yeah, but I I rode into, um, well, I had the good sense to see it and and pull off, but I I rode into a huge um, F3 tornado in the middle of Missouri. This is 30 years ago, but I was on the motorcycle. This, no. Uh, so I pulled off and watched it off and, you know, in the distance kind of meander around and, 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 you know, miss where I was at, but yeah, it, it tracked right on the, right on the highway. This was right outside of Columbia, Missouri. Uh, so yeah, weather, weather events on the bike are, can be really sketchy very quickly. I, so. I can, I can imagine I did not feel safe in, in my little Honda Civic knowing exactly how late it was. So uh, a motorcycle, yikes. Um, okay, so that's a fun, a fun little 
intro. Um, so let's let's transition into um, in, into the story behind Freepository. Sure. So let's kind of maybe go back a, a few years before you you started it. Sure. So what kind of trends or or what kind of um signals were you seeing from from the well, industry it's one of those you know accidental uh careers almost uh i was already in technology i was working at a uh, you know, pretty big telecom company in denver actually colorado springs in the early 90s and i had been given a a, a source control project you know here run uh, I think it was PVCS uh, for a couple of projects. And it was, you know, it was a clunky tool. I didn't like it. I'd never had any exposure to this and yuck. And then that turned out that was very short lived because there was a, a huge layoff like just a few months later. So what I ended up doing was going from, I decided I didn't really want to go through a layoff again. That'd been my second one in, in like under 10 years at different companies. And I, I decided to uh, try to consult him for the first time. And I knew from, or at least I, I assessed that not a lot of people knew or understood source control. And there was kind of an, kind of an, you know, a, an ugly but necessary part of software development and nobody really wanted to do it. So maybe there was an opportunity there. And so I started looking for projects like that. I found, you know, a handful and started doing those. And, you know, the, the source control projects, uh, source control consulting projects fairly quickly morphed into build and release. And that was clear that this was, this was just incredibly important uh, part of, of being able to release any piece of software. Uh, and so few companies were, were doing it well if they were even doing it at all. So that turned into, you know, a, a, a very lucrative um, piece of you know ongoing business for me, but I kept bumping into, uh, you know, a fairly singular, just super aggravating problem, and that was being able to access my clients' source code. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, you have to be here on our network, and I, I don't recall there being. Well, I know I never used a VPN with the very early clients. I don't I mean, I don't think there was even a commercial solution. I'm not going to pretend to remember this, but I know that I, I didn't personally use one. So it, it didn't exist for me or for them. So what I conceived of was what if I could access these source code repositories across the internet? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing banking. We're starting to do banking and other secure things across the internet. So, you know, why not this? So that that was literally a middle of the night. It was probably like 11 p.m., but I always say it's the middle of the night. <laughs> but I like sat up in 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 bed. I was in this farmhouse, an 18th century farmhouse, middle of Massachusetts, on another project. You know, another frustrating day of of not being able to do any work except at the client. And there was some some weirdness at the client site that day where. I could only get in there for two hours. So that meant, you know, I'm here for the day, but I only got two billable hours. Right. So that, that was costing me money. Uh, so I came up with this idea. 
sat up in bed, like, what if, blah, and I came up with a name at the same time. You know, it's a free repository, free repository. Mm-hmm. And that, that's literally the, the genesis of that. That's the origin story. And I was really excited about it. Had no idea how I was going to do this. But I, um, you know, immediately put together, you know, kind of a, a crude MVP and it worked. And then I started to build a company around it. And uh, in very short order, I had a company with 16 employees. I had raised uh, 700 uh, in seed, 700 mm-hmm. friends and family. We didn't call it seed then. Friends and family around 700,000. And had a, uh, I had, was eight days from closing the A round, a $4 million eight round when the capital markets collapsed. So that, that this went, you know, from zero to a hundred very quickly. And then from a hundred back down to zero again, you know, fairly rapidly. It was a, right. it was a, a big whiplash moment there. Yeah. But I kept the service running and it, and it continued to grow. So let's let's uh, let's do some context setting um, here. So this was ninety nine. Ninety nine going into two thousand. Yes. What was the predominant source control system at the time? Predominant version control for on premise stuff was honestly there was it was none. To be to be honest, it was direct. It was directories full of files that 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 Joe Bob decided were ready, and yeah. that was it. I mean, you you want to be real? That's real. Um, for those who pretended that there was an actual, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but but for for organizations that used source control, mm-hmm. the commercial tools were were still the ones that they believed were the ones that were were supposed to be there. Um, PVCS still had a pretty big footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, it had a long shelf life because a lot of people were do, still doing windows development. Again, this is kind of the, kind of the beginning of the commercial internet. Yeah. I mean, you split hairs. Oh, it goes back to 93. Yes, it does. I know I was there, <laughs> but in, in terms of large scale economic, uh, commercial footprints for services, 98, 99, it's, it's beginning to emerge. RCS was still pretty common inside large organizations for uh, companies that, for, for teams that were doing uh, any sort of command line Unix stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, C programmers were, were almost universally using um, RCS. And of course, RCS, uh, somebody at some point well, I know who it was, Brian Burrow. He decided that, hey, why not just script all this? Because ultimately, nobody wants to type the same command more than three times. Yeah. Gonna, instead of typing it that fourth time, they're going to automate it, right? So they're going to put a wrapper around it. CVS originated as a wrapper around RCS. Nothing more. It was a script. And then um, then somebody else, and I might be munching the names here, but it went from a script to its own uh, C compiled binary um, in, in pretty short order, uh, under a year uh, for sure. So CVS, the the application mm-hmm. 
is what I started working with, you know, almost immediately. Certainly the, the first iteration of Freepository was all CVS. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a big paradigm shift. Think not there was no there was no commercial service mm-hmm. that performed source control online. Freepository was the first. And we'll put links to um to, to Wikipedia articles for for some of these version control systems because I know for a lot of people CVS means a drugstore. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's it's kind of mind blowing, right? Because the first thing that we do these days when we've got an idea is we create a directory and we do a git init. Right? Yep. Yep. Um and so the the idea that you've got these commercial commercial companies to be redundant um not using version control at all is is it really sets the stage everybody everybody starts somewhere right yeah and the version control had a couple of breakout moments over the years uh you know i was first yay uh a very uh a very well-known also early um, competitor, which was similar similar in implementation to uh, FreePositor was SourceForge. And mm-hmm. People probably heard of SourceForge. A um, lot of money got dumped into that. Uh, it was a very, very well publicized service. Uh, and, you know, it got a lot of attention. And there was a lot of, a lot of projects, a lot of early work went into SourceForge, a lot of things that we that we would now call you know open source projects mm-hmm. went into SourceForge, even if they didn't really properly have real uh, OSS licenses. So yeah. it was this weird kind of one foot in, one foot out uh, uh, in terms of the stuff that was on SourceForge. And you know, meanwhile, Freepository is is continuing to you know, with, with no advertising at all, mm-hmm. just you know, chug, 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 chug. And there were, you know, there were uh, periods where I would have just, uh, just absolutely non-linear growth. And then it would, you know, then it would be little linear and then non-linear again. And that was, it was, I always wanted to understand that, but I never really did completely figure out what it was prompting those uh, bursts of growth. But, uh, yeah, when, when, when it was, I mean, I said it's at its heyday, its height in 2009, I had about 400,000 members, wow. like a little over 3 billion lines of code under management. And, you know, it's just, it's what people were using. Uh, SourceForge was becoming, you could kind of already see the, the, you know, on the horizon, SourceForge is, um, ultimate uh, ending, I don't, <laughs> are they even still around? They honestly, are still around, yes. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. I know that the last time I purposefully looked at SourceForge, they were repackaging downloads with ads or something. I mean, it was a very sketchy thing. I don't even remember the details. It was like, oh, this is, this is just very, I mean, it was sad and it was gross. 
uh, it was just a lot of money went into that. I think we ended up in private equity hands, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Collabnet ended up the same way. Yeah, which, I remember Collabnet. Yeah, they ended wow. up the same way. So, what what was like when you first pitched Source for or SourceForge Free Repository to to yeah. to potential customers? What was the reaction? Was it this? Well, see, this is funny. I didn't pitch it to customers. Okay. People found it. Okay. Which is is crazy uh, and and almost unbelievable. I mean, it's a difficult to it's a difficult to believe story, but I lived it. So, I mean, I know what happened. Here's what I think occurred. Mm-hmm. The very first like hundred or so users came about as a result of pitching it to VCs in late 99. So that that really very early set were just, they were affiliated uh, accounts for sure. You know, somebody who I showed it to, showed it to somebody and they thought it was interesting and showed it to somebody else. And then, you know, the, the what is this, the six degrees of, of separation suddenly became 12 or 14 or 15. And there was there was no clear connection back to me in any way, shape, or form. But very early users, very early accounts, and I only ever saw uh, you know email domains come in and register. I never looked at any any uh, content. Mm-hmm. Uh, NASA JPL, uh, Microsoft, mm-hmm. uh, IBM, in, entire branches of government for countries like Australia. It was it was wild, and these were not just hit and runs. Wow. These were accounts that showed up, and then stuff started happening. And and you know the the users within these accounts would start to grow. So it went from one to two to three to four. You know, and I had accounts with. Um, I think the largest was like 110 users in in a particular project. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no shortage of you know one and two member projects or. But the kind of the sweet spot was uh, around 10. There was just a just a boatload of, of 10 to 20. Another sweet spot around 50 to 70. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the outlier were the ones with 100 or more members. But, you know, there were a lot like that. And it was just, this is all word of mouth. Yeah. Advertising. That's amazing. And and it shows the how how right the timing was like if you've got if you've got one or two people collaborating on a project yeah you can do it without source control yeah yeah um and and you know companies did that yeah oh yeah they pass around uh directories and and whether it was a, a zip file or or you know a a tarball, I remember walking into projects to do to create a build and release system in 1996. Uh, TCI, huge cable provider here in Denver. No shortage of money, a lot of smart people. Their release management was here's a tarball. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yep. Where's the source? You know, there is no source control. This is the tarball. Yep. This is the stuff that works. So there were a lot of elaborate, you know, directory names and, and namings of uh naming conventions for the tarballs and yep. that was the version control. I mean, we still see this with uh you know not not 
uh, source code, but PowerPoint files, final, 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 final V2, final, really final, no. Final, real final, final, final. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot the other thing, finally. Yeah. And, and it wasn't that different right. for, for source code at, at one point. So it's yeah. totally believable. Now, since this is open source stories, right. did you see any open source projects utilizing the yes. repository? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, nothing that I looked at yeah. in terms of service, but I did see, uh, I did see some of that early, mm -hmm. you know, emerging early. Uh, you know, my, I had a very simple terms of service. So there were seven, seven items, and one of which was, you know, your stuff is your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you know, you're able, it's your right to release it under any license you want or no license, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody's gonna show up at repository and download your stuff without being a member of your project. So that's always your your um, prerogative. But yeah, this was, this was in the days of, uh, the GPL was was the, the predominant, yep. certainly not the only, but the predominant uh, uh, open source license. I did see, uh, I did see the license file, um, you know, in in some activity. So I know it was there. Uh, I don't know what it was applied to per se. Uh, there was a lot of games development uh, in the early to mid early uh, 2000s, uh, just a tremendous amount. And again, the kind of these pockets of utilization that I was communicating something, but I'm really never sure what, had a, a, a very large user base in in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, early on just seemed like it emerged out of nowhere. Like what, you know, what's this from? I don't know. Uh, and it might have been something as simple as, you know, the service I was using, you know, had very low latency in Brazil. I don't mm -hmm. know. I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and Australia. You know, there was nothing, 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 or at least, you know, not that I noticed. And then a large uh, pocket of utilization. So that's a kind of a meandering way to answer uh the question whether there were open source projects on there. Mm -hmm. And that's primarily because I didn't really inspect anything. Sure. I know that it was there because superficially I could see uh, you know, that in in logs I could see that the the um uh the license files mm -hmm. were by so now with your kind of uh magical glasses of hindsight how how did you see this both both repository and kind of the the concept of hosted source control contributing to the the evolution of open source well it removed barriers and it still does um you know you go from you know directory structures and you know trying to manage things with with physical names and things like, like that, you know. Foobar number dot one, foobar mm -hmm. number two. Okay, it's it's really crude, but it's a form of version control. But it, it it has a very high cost of entry. 
uh, uh, it's it's very difficult to add a second person into a project like that. Mm-hmm. When when you distribute this thing and you abstract uh, distribute access across the internet and you abstract the the access controls and the mechanics of versioning stuff to a service is just you know it's a, a thing that's running in the background is doing this for you so you don't have to think about it it's it makes it removes a, a, a lot of the barriers of entry for participation so it makes it a lot easier to add that second and third and fourth and fifth and nth uh, team member mm-hmm. that was a big uh, uh, enabler. So that's already there, right? And when when GitHub emerged, I mean, they, they seemingly came out of nowhere, but they really didn't. You know, it was uh, subversion was subversion was orders of mag or an order of magnitude at least better uh, uh, than CVS. CVS was you know RCS and then CVS and then subversion and then you know get above that. And each one of them did did something significantly better along uh, one or more uh, specific kind of operational modes or 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 uh, interactive mechanisms, whatever that made it easier to use. And, mm-hmm. and so again, you're so as your as your better you know degree is is increasing. You know the the uh, cost of Cost of using it is is lowering. the the the, uh, the barrier to entry is is uh, lessening. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to contribute. And when everything is online, and you know your 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 barrier to entry is an internet connection, which you know, granted, is is still maybe a you know first world sort of assumption, but it's it's assumed that in uh, most of the world, you have the ability to uh, to gain access to high-speed internet. Maybe it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I don't want to make any social commentaries there, but but that's something that is that's more ubiquitous today than it was, say, 25 years ago. That's table stakes. And being able to look at someone else's work that they've released, you know, for whatever motivation, um, hey, here's this thing that does this thing really, really well, and because I'm so small, I'm going to release it, and boom. Or, you know, sometimes you just you don't know any better. A lot of the early stuff was released with no licenses, so mm-hmm. because it's online, it's de facto open source. You can feel it. So you know, there's there's real open source licenses, and then there's de facto open source because you can see it. So there's a there's a whole bunch that fits into that uh, realm that is, you know, not precisely open source, literally, mm-hmm. pardon me, it is literally open source software, but it's not legally open source. So there's this weird oh, there. We can We can dig into that another time, yes, <laughs> for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so um, being able to just go to a URL, blah, 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 boom, and be presented a secure uh, uh, project environment where you can, if not directly develop your your uh, 
code, mm -hmm. at least be able to securely uh, version control it and be able to go back to previous versions. Oh, the, you know, this one's broken. Uh, you know, I, I, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't implement this correctly. This has this weird edge case. I want to go back to the, the, you know, the last thing I committed. It's really easy to do. And we, this is stuff we take for granted today. I mean, this is, this is certainly stuff I take for granted. That you can't see it, but I've got uh, a development environment open right now. I'm mm -hmm. working on a, an expense manager, you know, use my phone, you know, take a picture of a receipt, text extraction does its thing, does the math and gives me, you know, gives me an expense report. You know, hey, yay, you've reinvented you know, something that's already out there. Yeah, maybe so, but this is something that I want and I can focus in on the the features that matter to me and kind of a, an overarching theme for me over the past few years has been for privacy. Mm -hmm. I don't like um, applications that are, uh, you know, I mean, to be blunt, they're spying on me. I don't want trackers. I don't want ads. Um, I don't want anything that is going to, uh, you know, be collected later and anonymized, and you know, I, I don't want to be profiled. Right. You know, if I'm even if I'm using a free service, I I want to have a lot of clarity around what is being collected and how that's being used. And there are a lot of free services I'm just I will not use today because of that. And because of privacy promises. And I feel like that's really an ethos that shows up over and over again in open source is control over the experience and control over the or, or insight into the transparency, the pushback against telemetry, et cetera, that we right. see um, open source enabling. So. Yeah, I. I briefly implemented, and to, to tell on myself here, um, I briefly in, implemented ads on repository on the free uh, accounts. And mm -hmm. I think it's 06, maybe 07. It's been a long time ago. Yeah. For 30 days, I wanted the data. It's like, I mean, if this is a boatload of money, you know, maybe with the right amount of, dis with the right disclosure, right. maybe I'll put the ads there. Zero, I mean, near zero click. I think it might have even been zero, come to think of it. There was just, it, it, it was, there was nothing there. And it was, right. a, it was gross. And so I yanked it out. So this is disgusting. Mm -hmm. It's not, this is not what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to run the service um, and support it with you know, the consulting income, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to, it's going to support itself with paid accounts, right? Which you know, I mean, it, there were there were paid accounts, no question about it, but it was very lopsided, you know. And this was this was a lesson that I will uh, remember for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. If the free stuff is good enough, you're not going to get conversions. You're just not going to get, you know, the uh, the. I mean, it's economics 101. You've either got conversion costs that are very high, you know, switching costs. So if if I'm using service A, service B comes along and service B is better, but the switching costs are really, really high, like 
oh, everything that I've been running over here in service A, um, even though it would be better over in B, I have to do all these things. And it's a 45 day project that's gonna cost me 10 grand to move over here. But then the experience is better. It's never gonna happen because mm -hmm. it's switching time. But if the switching cost is low or zero, that's gonna happen really quickly. I mean, like there's just gonna, you're gonna hear a whoosh. Mm -hmm. and, and conversely, if, if you are personally, your service A and service B and one is free and one is, is, is paid, if, if there's not enough differentiation between the free version and the paid version, um, you're not going to have people to, you're not going to have switchers. Yeah. You're not going to have people that upgrade because I already have everything I need right here in the free version. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a lesson that is um, really, it's, it's impossible to respond to after you figure it out. Yes. Because you've already conditioned your, your customer base for an, an extremely compelling free service. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's a lesson that we see people learning over and over again, especially as they try to commercialize open source. Yeah. Yeah. It, you want to really understand what freemium means to your business and what is going to compel a customer to upgrade. And if, you know, if that's not a slam dunk argument that you, you know, you can make in two sentences, you know, step away. Mm -hmm. So I know we're we've run over time a bit, yeah. um, and I want to 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 make sure that we respect your time as yeah. well. Um, so when when did you decide to to kind of sunset Freepository? That was it became clear in 2010 when you know the the new the rate of new users was declining. I still had new users, you know, uh, registering, but the rate at which it had been occurring was significantly off. And there's, I mean, there's no question that that, that was the result of GitHub's uh, popularity just, you know, beginning to climb. So again, you know, new, not only were switching costs, uh, you know, low or, or good enough mm -hmm. or attractive enough, to switch, but just wholesale new accounts were uh, were abandoning subversion altogether, mm -hmm. and it, a lot of that was less about Freepository or even SourceForge, and more about um, not wanting to use subversion because right. you know subversion had all these weird quirks, a lot of which you know were uh, the result of having come from CVS anyway. Mm -hmm. So I knew, I mean, I've got like 400,000 people using this. So this is not a trivial thing to just shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, respect for the people that were using it, how much they depend upon it. And in fact, I'm still, you know, still generating income from the consulting, which, you know, there's, you know, I, I'm not naive. My, my calling card for these projects was, well, you know, here's this, this thing, that, this thing over here, this is, this is me. Oh yeah, what what's your company? It's like no, it's me, <laughs> me doing this, um, and you know. So there was there was still enough 
uh, equilibrium there. I mean, it was still there was no urgency yet. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the longer the longer that utilization uh, curve, you know, was collapsing, you know, it was clear. I need to shut this down. This is this is this. There's no longer an economic benefit to me to run this. Mm-hmm. This is charity. This is you know, people are not signing up for this. So uh, I gave uh, I gave members six months, uh, you know, lead times. So this is what's happening. Here's why. I built uh, additional tools to allow people. And I had had this almost from day one. People could download their repositories and go, but I made it even easier to do. Mm-hmm. Download your repository, go, uh, and um, I kept backups. I still have cold in cold storage backups. So if someone comes to me today and says, oh, this thing that's going to solve world hunger, you know, is in this repository that is shut down, I could probably go find it. I mean, I've had, I've actually had that happen a couple of times over the, the past four years. So that happened in 2016. So it's wow. been offline now for six years, almost six years. That's uh, an incredible run, though. Yeah, 17 years. That's it. Um, you know, no security incidents, incidents, uh, no data loss. Wow. Um, and and even, you know, even the support issues that were, you know, kind of challenging for a specific project or repository, none of them were ever really like nasty. Nobody ever really got like pissed off, like, you suck. It was just, how do we make this work? You know, this is, this weird thing is happening and how can we figure it out? So. Wow. I love it. This that's I feel like we don't get enough of those stories out there in the world. You know, they were pretty common before the the really big obnoxious money showed up. Yeah. Uh, this this I don't think this is an uncommon story. Like live yeah. journal. Yeah. You know, with live journal and uh um some of Anil's early stuff with uh um can't think of the that uh he was with the blogging company. I have drawn a blank on who they yeah. were, who he yeah. was with. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Not uncommon. I think that was more. That was almost the the norm. Yeah. yeah. Almost the norm. Exactly. Um. Okay. So, do you have one piece of advice to give? Yeah, you know, make sure you're interested in what you're starting. Okay, number one, sounds almost flippant, but, you know, if you're just, if you're going for a paycheck or, or a payoff, mm-hmm. figure out something else, maybe, because um, you're going to lose interest. Mm-hmm. You're, that's, a, that's a really perverse motivation, in my opinion. Uh, it's almost an anti-motivation. Um, reverse incentives are, are not good. Inverse incentives, pardon me. Uh, you know, continue learning. And I, I read a ton every day. You know, I'm, you know, I model stuff all the time. You know, I maintain contact with with uh, friends in the industry. I mean, you know, we had lunch not even a month ago. Uh, and so surround yourself with smart people who are doing things that interest you and who are going to, you know, help push you to do maybe, mm-hmm. you know, interesting things. I don't know. Interesting is, is 
it's kind of a, an overloaded term for me. I use it to to signify a lot of, you know, a lot of things. Uh, if you're going to start a company, make sure there is a pretty clear path to um, a return. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just, you know, you're signing up for an expensive hobby. I feel that in my bones. <laughs> so I will I will try to take that advice personally. Uh, and thank you so much, John, for sharing the story behind Free Repository. Thanks. And-